Well, here we are, part 63. This will be our last sermon on Revelation. And um, I also put together a, uh, a little list I called uh, Who's Who and What's What in Revelation and Things Related. So uh, it might help you if you are reviewing uh, all these notes and sermons, things like who are the 144,000, what's Armageddon, who's Babylon, who are the two beasts, and so forth. It's all in there for you to take a a quick look at, but we're looking at Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 through 21, hear now the word of God. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely, I am coming quickly, amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we examine your word, that the same Holy Spirit, Lord, who inspired these words to be written, would give us an understanding of them. We do pray, Father, that we would cherish the fact that you have revealed yourself to us in words that even though we struggle to understand them fully, There's enough clarity to them that even a child can read your word and know what they need to know in order to find peace with their maker. But help us, Father, to dig as deep as we can to know wonderful and glorious things as we study your word, as we come to the conclusion of this particular book. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is entirely possible that God saved my soul when I was seven. For some reason, I can't recall why now, I wandered into uh, an Assembly of God church in uh, Hermosa Beach on 3rd Street, just uh, west of Pacific Coast Highway. The building's still there. It's not a church anymore. We lived on 4th Street. So I only had to go around the block. I don't even, like I said, I don't know why I ended up there. I ended up going there. And I went to that church, really a Sunday school class, as a seven-year-old for a, for a year. And I still have the Bible they gave me. I don't usually bring props anymore, but here it is. I was, as I was writing this, I looked on the shelf, and here's the Bible when I turned eight that they gave me from the Assembly of God Tabernacle uh, in Hermosa, presented to Paul Vigiano at Hermosa Beach, California, by Assembly of God Tabernacle. I remember being enthralled by the Sunday school teacher. I thought she was old. I don't know, maybe she was 40. I'm, you know, when you're seven, everybody seems old. You know, and they had those flannel board. You guys remember? They had these little flannel board before computers and cardboard cutouts of Moses and probably Jesus, you know, putting on there. And, you know, I just sat there and, uh, and listened I can't help think, I mean, I'm guessing this was 60 years ago, so I can't help think that 
whoever that lady was, has gone to be with the Lord. But I also can't help think that she would be so encouraged that I became a pastor. You know, think about you Sunday school teachers, the influence you have. I mean, like I said, I don't know for sure if God saved me then, but I, I have no doubt that had a major impact in my life to this, to this very day. Well, that's in Hermosa. When, we turned, when I turned nine, nine or ten, we moved to Redondo. Now, that was, we only moved about two or three miles away. But when you're nine, that might as well be moving to the moon, right? It's like I just quit going to church. And my understanding and my living out of the Christian faith was far less than elementary. I mean, I, like I said, I, he, God may have saved me, but... When we moved, I just quit going to church. My parents didn't go to church, and so I just kind of started living my life. But I do recall very clearly that it was naggingly apparent that God was real and that Jesus Christ was, in fact, the way. Like, I couldn't escape that. That was just kind of part and parcel of my, of my psyche And I remember one night, I was giving my friend's girlfriend a ride home from some event. I still remember who she was, but that doesn't really matter to you. But clearly, years had passed, right? Because now I'm driving. So at least eight years, because you had to be 16 to drive. And for some reason, I had this Bible that I just showed you in my car. And I remember my friend's girlfriend who was a very smart and thoughtful person, asking me questions about the Christian faith. And I was seeking to be an advocate for the Christian faith, of which I knew nothing. (laughs) So she picks up the Bible that I had in my car, and she starts flipping through the pages, and she says, is this yours? And I said, yes, all proudly, there's my my religious trinket, (laughs) demonstrating the veracity of my convictions. (laughs) And she starts thumbing through it, and I'll never forget, she's thumbing through it, she goes like, this book has never been read. (laughs) And it was true, there was not a single dog-eared page on a book that was clearly at least eight years old, so some repenting needed to happen. Now, I'm sharing this with you because this was like the late 60s and early 70s, and the Jesus movement was afoot. Some of you remember the Jesus movement. They just made a, a movie about that, the Jesus Revolution. And I was surrounded, if you were a part of the South Bay, and I think it was all through the country, I was surrounded by aggressive evangelism. And it wasn't just, you know, the Bible-toting hippies, and there were a lot of them at the pier with their big wooden crosses and plaid flannel shirts and and beards, and and their Bibles very dog-eared, by the way. But it wasn't just them. I remember being courted by Roman Catholics, Baptists, Presbyterians, Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, no Methodists for some reason. Methodists didn't didn't want me. But I was kind of a hot lead, and what I mean by that was I was interested. And so they realized, oh, we 
we could close the deal with this guy. He's, he's up for the conversation. And, and there was no shortage of proselytizers who wanted to close the deal with me. And as I was seeking, and I remember this very clearly, being about 17 at the time, 17, 18, I'm, as I was seeking to determine you know, whose religious dance card I was going to take the floor with, you know, who's going to win me, I noticed that they all had one thing in common, because I'm interviewing people. Now, this was before America had become so internationally ecumenical, just so you understand, the Buddhists and the Hindus and the Muslims and the Jews had not really begun to have much of a presence in our country at the time, although, although there were a lot of Hare Krishnas, but they were usually either at the airport or in Venice. But, but, and to this day you'll find this to be true, what all the religions, especially the Christian ones, had in common, but even the non-Christian ones, even the Jews, even the Muslims, even the Buddhists, even the Hindus, was a general respect for the Scriptures. Whether you know this or not, Jews, Muslims, and Christians are all called the men and women of the book. And so they'll say they believe, especially in the Old Testament. But they're all like, yeah, this is a book that conveys the truth when it comes to the things of God. Now, by Scripture, I'm talking about the 66 books of the Old and New Testaments. I'm talking about the Bible. I'm talking about the best-selling book of all time. They all said, look it. You know, they literally would come to my house and they'd have Bibles. The most reliable even by worldly standards, the most reliable ancient document by far in human history. And there's not a close second. Even by mere literary historical standards, a startling, consistent, accurate, and monumentally influential piece of literature. There's nothing like the Bible in the course of of history. Even the detractors can't ignore it. Even people who want to critique it can't ignore the truth of it. Our confession, I think, beautifully speaks to this phenomenon where it speaks of the reverent esteem the scriptures deserve. It speaks of, quote, the heavenliness of the matter. Talking about the Bible here. The efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts. Let me just stop there for a second. This idea that the Bible is 66 books written by 40 different authors over a 1,500-year period who had different professions, and most of them didn't even know each other. And over and against all the critics, you can't find any inconsistencies in the Scriptures whatsoever. The, The Scriptures consent with each other from Genesis to Revelation. And every claim of a contradiction, because I spent a lot of time digging into that, is a false claim. These are people who either don't understand what a contradiction actually is, or they're not reading the Bible even remotely correctly. But I think we have to respect just the consent of the part and what a miracle that is. Well, maybe not technically a miracle, but how phenomenal that is. I mean, if there was an accident out on Carson and Crenshaw, and ten of us saw it happen and we were interviewed one day later, there'd probably be eight conflicting stories about what actually happened. 
And yet here we see the consent of all the parts of Scripture throughout the course of history. The scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God. The full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So I'm not an evidentialist, for those of you who are into apologetics, but I think that even if I were an evidentialist and I were like, going, well, the evidence points and there's evidence that demands a verdict, I think that's accurate as far as that goes. I think that the Bible, if you, if you want to ask me about this during Q&A, you can. I think the Bible should be believed because it's true. I think it is self-evidently true. But I only think the Bible is believed by the work of the Holy Spirit. We're not going to embrace it simply because it's true. Our eyes need to be opened by God to see the truth of his word. But back to my story, all this to say, I wanted to pick the religion that seemed most consistent with the Bible it claimed as its foundation. If you walk in my house with a Bible, then I want to know, is your religion actually what that Bible teaches? Well, that brings us to our text. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. I do think it's kind of fascinating that here we are at the end of the book, and this is where kind of the, the, the microscope goes. It, you know, the, the spotlight goes into, you need to believe what's being written to you. I mean, it's going to end with this, you know, a beautiful appeal to the grace of God. But here we are, kind of at the end of 63 sermons, and, and by the Holy Spirit, we're said, we are told, I have written to you, and you need to not depart from what I have written. God seems very concerned about the accuracy and legitimacy of his message to us. You know, as we studied the Westminster Confession, what was chapter one of the scriptures, right, of the Holy Scriptures? And some people complain about that. They're like, shouldn't chapter one have been of God and of the Holy Trinity? But they knew what they were doing when they were going, look, if we, if we don't, put the scriptures first, then we're going to have a misunderstanding of God as well. God has determined the means by which we would know him, and for some reason he has decided, and we got into that in the Westminster class, to put that information in a thing we call a book. That we might dig through it, understand it. Sentences, syntax, propositions, things that are understandable. We don't all agree on everything, But that's our problem. That's not the book's problem. And as time goes on, we get a a keener and clearer understanding of these things. But God is very concerned that the message from him to us is accurate. Occasionally, somebody will reach out to me. This happens more times than you might realize. And they'll say something like, I heard you said such and such. Pastor Paul, I heard you said such and such. Or someone told me that you wanted me to do so and so. 
when I didn't say such and such, and nor did I want the person to do so and so. And I, I'm a little miffed by that. I'm like, I didn't say that. That's why sometimes I write my sermons out word for word. I'm like, and maybe I misspoke, and we can go to the tape and see if I actually did say that. But other times, it's just in casual conversation. But yeah, have you ever been misrepresented? Yeah, it's not, you don't like that. But generally speaking, when you're misrepresented or when I'm misrepresented, it doesn't have soul-threatening consequences, right? If I, if I said, you said we were going to meet to play volleyball at three. And I'm like, I didn't say three. I said two. No, you said three. Well, I've been misunderstood. No souls are threatened. But the message from God to us, that's a different story. This affects eternal souls. Years ago, I mean, you know, I, I, I'm kind of OCD about writing sermons. You know, I have to have them done by a certain time, and I have, you know, I'm much more um, kind of high-strung now and when I write a sermon than when I was first a pastor. People used to joke that my sermon notes were, talk about God. And now I'm, you know, I've got all, i got like, I don't know, 16 pages of notes here. As you get older, you're kind of a little bit more concerned because you recognize it's no small thing to get up in a pulpit and start talking about God. And I remember years ago, I gave an illustration when we were, when we were in visiting Italy and all the hundreds of churches. There was one church that had, they all have unbelievable artwork, but had the artwork, and it had angels in this church. In the upper corner of, you know, the, the chapel or the cathedral, and they were behind a pulpit. You know, imagine them kind of up here somewhere, but a big, gigantic church. And they had, like, a quill and scroll, you know, a quill and a book, and as if they were going to record every word coming from the pulpit. Some of you take notes. I, I think it's a good idea to take notes. makes me a little nervous when people take notes, right? Because I'm like, wow, you're putting it in writing. But that's the, the image given there was like, you're up here, you're giving a message, and the angels have their pens out, and they're recording what you're saying. And after I had mentioned that in a sermon, somebody sent me this quote I'm about to read to you from a... 19th century pastor named Matthew Simpson on the the importance of the pastoral ministry. And even though he's specifically talking about the pulpit ministry, I think this should affect any of us when we decide to open our mouth on behalf of the things of God. Because it's not the same as talking about what health club you're going to join or what grocery store you're going to be shopping at. When you start opening your mouth on behalf of the things of God, there should be a little bit of a quiver in your lips. And this is the quote... His throne is the pulpit. He stands in Christ's stead. His message is the word of God. Around him are immortal souls. The Savior, unseen, is beside him. The Holy Spirit broods over the congregation. Angels gaze upon the scene, and heaven and hell await the issue. What associations and what vast responsibility. And that hit me even harder as time went on and I began to realize that when we worship together, 
we as the church militant are really joining the church triumphant. We have come to that church. We have come to the city of the living God. We are part of that. Even now, even though not in its full consummation, we are part of that heavenly Jerusalem. So we need to recognize that when God has called us to himself, he's called all of us, not just the people in this room. And so there's something about this event that is quite extraordinary. But all this to say, God has chosen to preserve his message in a thing called a book. And even though, just so you understand, the, this book that we read of in this passage is referring to the book of Revelation. It's not referring to the whole Bible. The message of not departing from God's written word is predominant throughout all of Scripture. So similar to what we see in the Revelation, as I've said many times, there are over 500 allusions in Revelation to the Old Testament. And this is one of them. This idea of don't add to it and don't take from it. We see in Deuteronomy 4, 2, and I'm just picking a few here. You shall not add to the word which I command you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God, which I command you, Deuteronomy 4, 2. Then later in Deuteronomy 12, 32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. And here I have again, you shall not add to it or take away from it. So even though I said John is talking specifically of the Revelation, we see that it's not just the Revelation where we begin to add or subtract. It's one of the reasons why in this church you'll so often hear me say, and others say it as well, hear now the Word of God, then we read the Word of God. Then when we're done reading the Word of God, we say thus far the reading of God's Word. Now I'm going to get up and I'm going to tell you what I think it means. And that's where you really need to get your pens out and pencils out and kind of go, Really? Does it mean that? Because if it means that to you, it certainly doesn't mean that to me. You and I need to have a conversation. And you have a responsibility to do that. You have a responsibility to what? Test all things. Hold to what is true. Don't believe it just because there's a cross behind me or I'm standing behind a pulpit or I have this really cool tie on. (laughs) You've got to be willing to be a discerning learner. A couple more. Proverbs 35 and 6, every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. And then you might want, as you read the Gospels, kind of ask yourselves, how many times did Jesus say, have you not read? I think I counted at least 12, and those aren't all of the times. Have you not read? Jesus was emphatic about the value of Scripture and the impotence of those who minimized its value. Matthew 22, 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not knowing the Scriptures, nor the power of God. If you don't have the Scriptures, you don't have the power of God. God works through His true message. Thy word is truth. I mean, there are any number of other passages, right? 2 Timothy 3.16, right, is an obvious one, right, that all Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for correction and teaching and instruction and so forth. And friends, the problem that Jesus highlighted 2,000 years ago is the same problem, one way or another, that lingers to this day. The problem is the same problem. Mark 7.8 For you lay aside the commandment of God 
and you hold to the tradition of men. That's the problem. The problem is the Word of God is not in contest with the wisdom of man. There is no contest. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. The passage that we're reading right now is not really addressing laying aside the Scriptures. That would almost be too obvious. Don't add to it, don't subtract to it. You know, don't, don't bring the Bible in for a makeover. Right? Don't remodel it. The Bible is often approached like some type of need that it has a need for a health club. Bring it in, get the Bible in shape, so that then, once we get the Bible where it really needs to be, it will be relevant for the culture in which we live. Now, what we got here going is this idea that you're not just getting rid of the Scriptures, you're tinkering with it. You're changing it. Best-selling, and just for those who are listening on the radio, I'm doing air quotes, Christian author Rob Bell said, when asked by Oprah about his support of same-sex marriage, quote, the church will continue to be even more irrelevant when it quotes letters from 2,000 years ago as its best defense. This is a best-selling author. He sold more books than most Christian authors. In the 36th chapter of Jeremiah, there's an interesting event that takes place, and we're not going to go there, and I'll just give you the gist of the story. Jeremiah is the prophet. He's been banned from Israel. Israel's in a bad way. So he, uh, he can't go there, so he's going, I'm going to give Baruch, the scribe, I'm going to give you the word of God, and you're going to bring it to Israel. And Israel, when they read this word, the goal of this is for them to repent. You know, the, the, the there's, I mean, there's so many verses, the ones just pops in my head where God says, I'm going to cause a famine. It's not going to be a famine that involves food or drink. It's going to be a famine of the word of God. I mean, have we not, have we not begun to experience the birth pangs of that? All right, the, the stomach rumbling of that hunger within our own culture. And God is gracious. He's going, look at, you know, my, they have banned my prophet. He's basically in exile, but I'm going to get somebody to bring that word anyway. And why? why? What's the God's goal in bringing the word? Verse 3 of Jeremiah 36, so that everyone may turn from his evil way. Why? That I may forgive their iniquity and their sin. I was like, I, I want to forgive you. I'm going to bring my word to you that you may read it. And when you read it, you know what's going to happen? It's going to read you. Right? We, we want to judge the scriptures, but in Hebrews it says the scriptures judge us. And, and we all are found guilty. But the other message in scripture, which is the reason that I picked you know, Psalm 19, is that because the law there isn't just the commandments. The law of God is beautiful, converting the soul. You're talking about all of scripture carries the message of redemption. Matter of fact, just so you understand, I, the reason I started in, chapter, uh, in verse 7 is because 
Psalm 19, 1 through 6 is general revelation, right? The heavens declare the handiwork of God, right? So that's, that's verse 1, and that goes on for six verses. But the general revelation, the heavens, does not convey to us the means of redemption. It's not until you get into verse 7, the law of God is perfect, converting the soul. And this is the design of the word of God, that we might read it, hear the bad news, and then receive the good news. But when that letter that Jeremiah gave to Baruch reached the king, Jehoiakim, you know what the king did? He got out his penknife. I think if it was, you know, made in the 60s, it would have been a switchblade, right? like the sharks and the jets. And he, he basically gets that scroll out, and what does he do? He just starts cutting it, the word of God, cutting it and throwing it into a fire. I just saw a video of this uh, recently, this um, church of Satan, and this lady got up there, and she grabbed the Bible and just started ripping pages out of the Bible. Seems very dramatic, and maybe we would look at that and go, that seems obviously evil, because even the world would kind of go, well, people should be able to read whatever they want to read. But it's much more subtle. Jehoiakim's penknife becomes a very subtle thing, because it's not always as obvious as somebody getting out a knife and starting to cut up the Bible. There are numerous ways that Jehoiakim's penknife reaches us. Historically, it was just keeping the scriptures from the common man. I mean, uh, you know, during the medieval period, before the printing press, but there was the scrolls, the papyrus, the, write, the written word, would never got into the hands of common man. And then, as providence would have it, God raised up a guy named Gutenberg, right? But he didn't really do it. Who did it? Who actually was the first one who said, we need to get the Bible in the hands of the common man? Anybody know? Yeah, Martin Luther. In German. And I, you know, I, I, interesting, this whole, the, the history of this event, because they were like, going, no, 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 you can't put the Bible in the hands of the common man because the common man can't really handle it. And you know what? Luther actually agreed. And, and you know what? And he was right. All you have to do is start reading about the Anabaptists. And they weren't really handling the Word of God, I think, very well. Not just me, but it's a general consensus. But Luther also said, it's worth it. I'm willing to take that risk. People need to have the Bibles before them. You know, the New Testament, you know what kind of Greek... The New Testament is written in, anybody know what the, what the fancy word is? Yeah, koine. You know what that word means? Common. It's not the fancy Greek. It's the common Greek. It's written for you and for me to understand what the message in Scripture is. So one of the ways that the penknife comes out is no Bibles for you. Of course, during the Reformation, that all kind of ended. Now there's Bibles all over the place. What are other ways that we see that penknife come out? Well, there are those, and this happened right away, who promote the reading of the Bible in such an odd way that it becomes like Plato in the hands of a child. 
Luther called it a wax nose, this idea that I'm going to read my Bible, but I can kind of turn it into whatever I want to turn it into. Some, you know, theologians, popular, well-known, will say things like, it becomes the Word of God when it jumps off the page and reaches your eye or your heart. So it's not the Word of God there. In the air, it becomes the Word of God, and then, then you can interpret it any way you want to be the Word of God. There are others who are going, no, 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 the Bible isn't that. It's just one big, gigantic metaphor. Jesus didn't actually rise again. He kind of rises in our hearts. And that was even an issue in the Bible with the Gnostics and the Docetists. And they're like going, you know, he's, he's more imaginary than real. I'm inspired by the idea. That's why people will argue that John will write that which I saw, that which I touched, that which I heard, he makes it a very material thing. The Christian faith is not an immaterial thing. It involves Jesus actually bleeding. But there are those who would say, no, no, you're reading your Bible way too literally. And then there are others who create systems. And I want to be charitable here because I bought into one of those systems called dispensationalism. It's probably the most popular system. But even in the Reformed community, you know, we have our own systems, like this whole two-kingdom system, where you develop a way, a grid, and then you make the Bible fit into your system with a crowbar if necessary. (laughs) And I understand, you know, and again, my... I just had a birthday, and my wife bought me a puzzle. Somebody say, oh, like all sad-like. <laughs> you know, and it's little itty-bitty pieces and stuff, you know, and I'm like, you ever done, you know, and I, I'm looking forward to sitting down with my family and doing the puzzle. But you ever do a puzzle and you're like going, I just have to push this in a little harder. (laughs) I can make this work. And, you know, and I just, having gone to seminaries that taught this, I'm like, boy, you're really working hard to make the Bible fit into your system. Now, I I don't want to stand up here as if I'm somebody who's so biblically, you know, erudite and so systematically consistent that I have all the answers. I I recognize that there's a difficulty in studying the Bible and getting everything where it needs to be. But we need to be careful that we don't bring our ideas to the Bible and make it fit. That's called eisegesis, where I I have an idea and I'm going to make the Bible cater to my idea. We had an elder who's gone to be with the Lord in our presbytery who I really appreciated the way he put it. <clears throat> he said, one t- we, I don't even remember what we were talking about. He goes, I don't know. He goes, I'm going to read that passage again and give the Holy Spirit another shot at me. <laughs> Mac Laurie, remember Mac? Then I think there's the very, you know, and again, I don't want to sound uncharitable, but there's the very dangerous pra- practice of, of Rome And interestingly enough, the Charismatics who believe that special revelation continues to this very day. 
You know what I mean by special revelation? This idea that thus saith the Lord. I'll get up here and I, like I said, I'll look, when, when, when I say thus far the reading of God's word, I'm done with thus saith the Lord. Now I'm, I'm trying to make sure that what I'm saying now is helping you understand the passage that we've been looking at. But in the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope speaks ex cathedra from the seat of Peter. And it's not that everything he says is the word of God, but there are times they don't believe in a closed canon. They don't believe that the 66 books of the Bible is the sole infallible message from God to us. And interesting, you know what's interesting is the Roman Catholic Church went to South America Started a lot of churches in South America. But the Charismatics are also in South America. Like ex-Roman Catholics became Pentecostal because they all still believe in an open canon. Why join the Roman Catholic Church and wait for the Pope to speak ex-cathedra when you can speak ex-cathedra in your own kitchen, right? at your own Bible study? So there is a, a danger when you disavow a closed canon, when you're like, oh, no, this is the word of God. And we need to set this apart. I don't know how you can believe in continuing revelation and not fall into the category of adding or subtracting to what the Bible actually says. It just seems to necessarily follow. And I'm not saying this I'm not saying this just to make a theological point, and I hope I don't sound uncharitable, but I've been around long enough to see people abused by this. I've been around long enough to see heretics and cults. I've been around long enough for people to have their hearts broken in churches where somebody got up and said, the Lord told me to tell you. And it is. It's heartbreaking when people take that type of responsibility upon themselves. But we have to understand, and I I think our confession again says that, well, God alone is Lord of the conscience. God alone is the Lord of the conscience. And that conscience is dictated by his word alone. So uh, it's ultimately, you know, I mean, we have a church, I I think we have a pretty set up here. I think we have a nice looking thing. But there's a, historically, I don't know if you realize this, that they have designed churches to yield a message in the very design. That's something that architects do to this very day. I have friends who are doctors, right? And, you know, they'll, they'll, people will go in and they will um, design a hospital, but they'll design a hospital in such a way to make people, when they walk into the hospital, feel a certain way. They, they want kind of to you, they, they want you when you go into the hospital to kind of not be anxious, right? So they create a venue or they create a, you know, a lobby, you know, with water trickling down or something like that because they realize this is going to affect the way people are when they walk into the building. Historically, churches have done the same thing. And, and you know, when you go to, to Rome, which I've been there a couple times, we're going to go again, I mean, it's very impressive. St. Peter's Basilica, Sistine Chapel. I mean, those are impressive places. It's, an, it's amazing. Like, and one part of me is impressed, and another part of me is horrified, recognizing the history and the fact that all this was built by indulgence money, 
prior to the Reformation by people who were poor trying to pay enough money to get their loved ones out of purgatory and so forth. But Protestant churches, historically, and they don't always do this, they, they're, what do they do? How do they design it? Well, they have this. Here, I'm pointing to the elements of the Lord's Supper. Protestant churches, and we used to have one back here, will have a big open Bible. Big open Bible. Word, sacrament. Protestant churches have a pulpit in the middle because the Word of God is first and foremost in terms of the way he interacts with us and how we interact with him. Anyways, one more thing. There's a a very common practice as of late to ridicule the Bible. So, you know, they'll try to keep it from you. They'll try to get you to read it in a weird way. Or now it's very common with the neo-atheists to just ridicule the Bible, whether they're ridiculing the historical veracity or ridiculing the morality in the Bible, right? Oh, you guys believe in slavery and this and that. And, and none of these are legitimate criticisms. So whether the Bible is restricted, perverted, or ridiculed, here's, here's what you need to wrestle with as we finish the revelation. Does it contain God's word or not? Is it God's word or not? Are you willing to stand with Paul and say, indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar, as it is written. There you go, it's written again. Are you willing to kind of go look at, I think mankind has come to the end of himself, but God never comes to the end of himself. He's infinite. And I want to trust somebody who knows everything. Because if you, by the way, and this is more of a philosophical question, if you don't have access to somebody who knows everything, you can't know anything. Is, uh, is the earth the center of all creation? Be careful how you answer that. Because, you know, there was a time when it was like, oh, no, the church is the center, or the earth is the center, and then Copernicus shows up, right? And they're, like, trying to create systems where the planets are rotating to keep the earth in the center, and it's, like, not really working, And then we're like, no, the sun is the center, and we're rotating around the sun. But I didn't ask that. I'm talking about, is the earth, and I don't have the answer to this question, but neither do you, and nobody can have it. Is the earth the center of all creation? You know the only way you can answer that? Is to have access to all creation. And then figure out, where's the center? So if you don't have access to all creation, you can't determine where the center is. And if you don't have access to all knowledge, you can't have any knowledge. Everything, I mean, you might go, well, I have knowledge about this or that, but you don't have the extension of that knowledge. We can't know anything is right or wrong unless we have access to a God, access to a God who is transcendent and is absolute in his being and in his character, which we have access to when we open our Bibles and begin to read it. Jesus taught heaven and earth will pass away. But my words will by no means pass away. Well, it's worth noting in that little story I just shared with you from Jeremiah 36 that even though Jehoiakim sliced it up and threw it in the fire, 
Baruch went back to Jeremiah and God said, write it again. Matter of fact, write it again and I've got some other things I want you to write for Jehoiakim. <laughs> Revelation, friends, concludes with a solemn warning. God determines the course of history and eternity and he has revealed that course in his word and if we seek to pervert or mislead others in terms of the word of God, we will find ourselves on the wrong side of both history and eternity. 20 and 21, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ to be with you all. Amen. All that John was writing about, even though it covers especially in chapter 20, all the course of human history from the time of Christ to the white throne judgment and his second coming. But all that he was writing about was about to begin. It's about to start. I'm coming. Temple's going to be destroyed. You know, the armies are going to be raised up. The beast of the sea, the beast of the land, all of this is about to happen. I am coming and everything I'm writing about, be ready. The original readers of Revelation were given warning about the difficulties they would soon encounter. But here's the deal. Similar to any other book in the Bible, we're not given such divine special revelation in all of our issues. Whether Jesus will come upon a people or a nation in judgment, he may do that. God raises kingdoms, right? And he deposes them. Whether or not he comes for you or me individually, right? Is it that appointment we all have, right? It is appointed once for a man to die, then comes what? The judgment. So whether it's the judgment of a nation, whether it's the judgment of an individual, or whether it is the second physical bodily coming of Christ, that great white throne judgment, judgment day, the final resurrection, we don't know. But we are to ever live faithfully. I hope you, I mean, I probably said it a bunch of times, but the call in Revelation is what? Persevere. Overcome. It's going to get hard. Be on the right side. Even, Even to death. Be on the right side. But I'll tell you something, and I just want to finish with this. I'm going to tell you what the petition in terms of come Lord Jesus should not be. And I think it's actually become the predominant sentiment. And that is a request to escape. To appeal to Christ to bring history to an end because our lives are difficult and his commission has many challenges, militates against the entire book of Revelation and its call to overcome and to persevere. Come Lord Jesus should not be life is rough, get me out. Beam me up. I mean, you see that sometimes. Beam me up, Jesus. Now, that, that is, there is nothing in the Revelation, if you read the whole thing, that gives that message. Overcome, persevere, fight the fight, keep the faith. That's the message of Revelation. Beasts come and go. Right? Who's, whose name is on your forehead? Whose name is on your hand? Who do you believe and trust 
with your mind, with your heart? Who do you serve with your hand? That's the message of the revelation. And then finally, all of Scripture closes with a word, a benediction, which should be the theme of every church and every Christian. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray. We pray for ourselves individually and corporately. We pray for not just our church, but for all churches, Father, in the midst of difficulty and tribulation, that we, by your Spirit, would remain faithful, faithful in trusting Christ as the only way of redemption and faithful in walking in your word, walking in your law and being a light in a city on a hill, in a world that is in desperate need of your wisdom. Help us, Father, to be faithful in this. We do pray, Father, that on all of this, your name would be lifted up and glorified. Amen.